0: Welcome and thank you for joining us for today's CME podcast. PrimeMed podcasts are dedicated to providing on-the-go clinicians with pertinent evidence-based primary care content that won't take too much time out of your busy schedule. Information about CME credits and faculty for today's podcast can be found within this activities landing page on primemed.com/podcast. That's p-r-i-m-e-d.com/podcasts. Be sure to also go to this location in order to claim your CME credits after the program. Thank you and enjoy.
1: Greetings, everyone. Welcome to another session of Coffee with Dr. Chopra. I'm delighted to welcome my guest today, Dr. Abraham Morgan Taylor. We've known each other for decades and traveled around the world giving talks He's a pioneer in men's health. He serves as an associate professor part time in surgery, urology at Harvard Medical School. And he's written a number of books. One of them is called Testosterone for Life, and the other one is The Truth About Men and Sex. So Abe, uh, before we start, I just wanted to mention, uh, I'm writing a book. Uh, It's all about coffee, and so I've done a lot of research. (laughs) And as you likely know, coffee lowers the risk of seven common including metastatic prostate cancer. Hmm. I'm going to talk about prostate cancer. And two two to four cups of regular coffee a day, 50% reduction metastatic prostate cancer mortality. But the first question I want to ask you is do men undergo menopause similar to women. What happens with aging to our hormones?
2: Well, thank you, San- Sanjeev. It's great to be with you. And I've got my cup of coffee right here, reducing my risk of all those different cancers. You're always inspiring. And it's really, a, a, it's really an honor to be doing this show with you. Um, And I suppose we could talk about coffee for the next half hour, but we'll go on to male menopause. So, you know, I've been doing uh, work in this area for literally for 40 years. I started working with testosterone when I was an undergraduate at Harvard in um, uh, working with lizards and testosterone. And um, I wasn't sure I was going to medical school. I was going to be a biologist. But we were looking at the sexual behavior of these male chameleons, Nolus carolinensis. And um, and whether we gave testosterone or took it away and gave it back, the effects were really rather dramatic. And when I went to medical school and uh, six years of residency in urology, we didn't learn much about testosterone other than it was bad for prostate cancer, is what the teaching was, and uh, it was necessary for male development. But testosterone wasn't being given uh, to men, uh, except for very rare instances in the late 1980s when I came out of my training. And partly it was the belief that it was bad for prostate cancer could cause it. And part of it was that there was no general understanding about its possible benefits. The question you asked is, is there a male menopause? And the answer is absolutely there is uh the the phrase was in uh was kind of popular for a while and then we kind of moved away from it because there were objections the objections are it's uh that it's not exactly the same as menopause in women but here's what is true and why they are similar to a great extent one is that both menopause in women the classical and in male if you like which I prefer calling testosterone deficiency, both of them are caused by a reduction in one of the sex hormones, sex steroids. The second is is that when they decline with age, more abruptly in women, but still they decline in men. And when they do so, it affects a broad range of um, physical uh, attributes, as well as creating a set of symptoms that are pretty similar and parallel, sexual symptoms as well as non-sexual symptoms. And so there are a lot of men who are in their 50s or 60s um, who feel like uh, they're dragging, their sex drive is reduced, their sexual performance is impaired, um, but they just don't feel right. They, they get up in the morning and they're, all, they're tired as soon as they wake up and they never get past it and they have nothing else in their lives that explain it. When they go to do a workout or exercise, they're not able to do what they used to do. Some of them lose muscle. Some of them gain fat, no matter what they're doing in terms of diet and and exercise. And many of these men, not all, of course, but many of these men have low levels of testosterone. And if we treat them, about four out of five of them will see benefits in terms of either sexuality or vigor, or some of them will talk about how sharp their brains are. Um, you know, it ranges the spectrum from nothing to mild. For some people, it's absolutely dramatic and life-changing.
1: Are there any risks for long-term
2: testosterone treatment? And what has your work shown in regard to prostate cancer? Well, thank you for the question. You know, it's funny. I, I sort of got started with this really on the risk side. And uh, in... in uh, in 2004, together with my fellow, we wrote a review article on uh, the risks of testosterone for the New England Journal of Medicine. And the timing was interesting because it followed pretty shortly the WHI, the Women's Health Initiative study that looked at hormones, uh, risks and benefits in women. And um, and of course, there was a big hullabaloo about the WHI uh, demonstrating that hormones were dangerous in women. That's been totally re re-analyzed, And I don't think that there's uh, too many people who still go by those in original sort of scary conclusions. Um, but for testosterone, what we found uh, was that uh, the risks in terms of heart disease and prostate cancer were hard to find and it's important to understand the history of this so back in 1941 was uh, a urologist in chicago university of chicago named charles huggins and he came up and who ended up winning the nobel prize for his work showing that castration removing the testicles was an effective form of treatment for men with metastatic prostate cancer so if these men had pain from bone metastases The pain improved uh, pretty rapidly. And they had a marker. It wasn't PSA, it was something else called acid phosphatase. And he showed that it went down if he did castration. And he gave testosterone to a few of these men and he reported that the acid phosphatase went up. And he concluded that uh, testosterone activates prostate cancer. 1941. We're now in the year 2020. It turned out that the number of men, who he gave testosterone to that were hormonally intact and showed anything happening was just one patient. And his curve about what happens is uninterpretable. It goes up, it goes down, it goes up, it goes down. Here we are, we're almost 80 years later. And the fear that was generated by his work became established as the conventional wisdom. And we've been terrified of prostate cancer ever since. A lot of the work that I've done for more than 20 years now has been sort of creeping up and and more and more, I don't want to say bravely because we did it bit by bit, but offering testosterone to men who first looked like they were at risk for prostate cancer, then men who looked like they were cured for prostate cancer and nothing happened to these men. They were fine. They got the benefits of testosterone. Their prostate cancer did not grow like crazy, which is what we'd always been trained. And we've got it now to the point where pretty routinely, not just in my practice, but many other urologists, will offer testosterone to men who have cancer. It hasn't been treated, they're just being monitored carefully. We call that active surveillance. And those are men with relatively low-grade, low-risk cancers. And then the latest thing I just published is now for men who want quality of life, despite having metastatic prostate cancer, and the traditional treatment for those has been androgen deprivation. We take away all their testosterone. They feel awful. They lose their strength, whatever. Um, but that's been the prevailing treatment. And there's some evidence it may improve longevity. But not by years and years. It's measured in months. And there's some men who don't want to live that way. They get tired, they get weak, they, ha- they get sexless. And so I've now seen a, a moderate number of men with metastatic prostate cancer who are willing to risk their lives in order to have their testosterone normalized and to live a better life. And what they say is, doctor, while I'm on this planet, I'd really like to live as well as I could. So we have some evidence that very small. I don't want your, your you know, the listeners of this show to think that it's safe. We don't know it's safe. They're told it could kill them in weeks or, or months. But the story is that, that our ideas about testosterone and prostate cancer have flipped completely, but it's taken a long time to get there.
1: What are the different choices for somebody to
2: receive testosterone? So we have a whole variety of formulations for testosterone. You know, until recently, the, the holy grail was to get a pill. <clears throat> and we didn't have one um that wasn't dangerous for the prostate there was an early version. i'm sorry for the liver there was an early version of a pill an alkylated version that's been around for something like 50 years Uh, if i'm not mistaken you wrote a paper about this 30 years or something ago about the liver toxicity so we never used pills even though they're actually available on formulary Um, but now uh, there was a pill just approved by the FDA about a year ago um, that works differently. It doesn't go to the liver. it's picked up by lymphatics and it appears to not have liver toxicity. Most of us don't have much experience with it. It's just been approved. Insurance takes a long time to um, make it make it easy. But our other choices that have been more traditional have been uh, short and long-acting injections, intramuscular injections. Uh, in my practice, we use a lot of pellets. They're like a grain of rice, but they're pure testosterone. We put them just under the skin in the buttock area, and they last about three months or so. Um, there have been topicals, creams, and gels and patches. Uh, patches tend to not work that well, uh, but the others are fine. And so we have a whole variety of uh, treatments. There's a, a new interesting one, which is a nasal gel. You do a little squirt up one side and the other side, two or three times a day. You just rub a little bit and uh, they get good levels. Very interesting. Good, good.
1: What do most patients
2: opt for? Nasal gel versus injection? It's a a, a pretty broad thing. And of course, insurance and cost actually are really play a huge role. So in the primary care setting, I think most people still do the gels. Um, Amongst urologists or specialists, we do a lot of injections or pellets. Um, The nasal thing is relatively new and I think exciting. It doesn't seem to um, have some of the side effects we pay attention to. So, for example, all testosterone products can cause a rise in the hematocrit and sometimes it overshoots. So the nasal thing doesn't seem to do that. And every testosterone product drops sperm counts. And the nasal gel does less of that as well. So, those are, it's an interesting, um, distinct, distinct, distinguisher.
1: Yeah. So, if you reflect on your career in the last 25 years, what have we learned about prostate cancer? What's new?
2: You know, it's an amazing thing, Sanjeev, is is, uh, sometimes we wonder, um, The the timing and the coincidence of being on this planet is just astonishing. And my my career from training to today coincides exactly with the modern era of prostate cancer. So I was in my training uh, between 1984 and 1988 in urology. And it was during that time that the blood test PSA came out. It was also during that time that the modern treatment of prostate cancer um, was invented really. Patrick Walsh, who was the chief of urology at uh, Johns Hopkins came up in 1982. He described for the first time how to do a radical prostatectomy for cancer in a way that wasn't incredibly morbid uh, for men with reduced blood. He did it based on dissections in a cadaver he figured out where the nerves went that control directions, and also how to control the bleeding. Before that, almost nobody had surgery for prostate cancer because it was a bloodbath and uh, there's some big veins down there. And everybody was impotent and a very high percentage were incontinent. And he figured out how to do it. That was 1982. And my first rotation through the Brigham and Women's Hospital in 1984 as a junior resident, in four months, there was one radical prostatectomy done. By the time of my chief year in 1988, it was the most common procedure that we were doing. And we probably did at that time 10 a week. And today that number is probably, I don't know, double, uh, probably double in, in most hospitals like that. And it became, and And what's amazing is that initially, we thought we had this amazing test, PSA. We had a new treatment. And the feeling was amongst urologists that we were going to cure this cancer. We're gonna wipe prostate cancer, the scourge from the face of the earth because we could find it early and we could treat it successfully. Now, 25, 35 years later, Uh, we realized that what we did partly all with good intentions with the data that we had at the time was that we over-treated. So we took a lot of men who had relatively low-risk disease, uh, who might have never had a a, a day's problem from, from the cancer, and we operated on them, and a certain number became impotent or incontinent. Our ability to preserve the nerves is far far better it went from zero percent before that to maybe as high as 50 percent now and uh, which is a big deal for people and incontinence in, in sort of healthy men is you know is maybe down to one or two percent it's not bad so and now the real advance is that we've trying to figure out we're not there completely who really deserves to have treatment and who can be watched and monitored um, and we're doing much more of that than we than we ever did. The latest advance is MRI, prostate MRI. Uh, I would say that five to seven years ago, in my opinion, it wasn't very good. There were many false positives, many false negatives. But it's clearly improved, and now in many centers in Boston, it's hard it uh, it's hard to avoid getting a prostate MRI if you have an elevated PSA and if somebody is thinking about a biopsy. So now it's quite good and it's really been a valuable addition to our armamentarium.
1: Great. Two other questions. Does robotic surgery offer any advantages? And two, would you comment on the seeming increased mortality in African-American men?
2: Yeah. So robotic surgery is it now. Frankly, um, You can't, (laughs) maybe for a year or two, you could find another year or two, you might find an old time urologist who still does what we call open radical prostatectomies, but the world has switched over. It's all robotic surgery now and it's incredible. And one can argue about whether or not uh, the results are any different outcomes appear to be the same in terms of cancer and, and some of the adverse effects, but it's clearly a quicker recovery and there's nobody anymore who's getting trained in the old, really I think it is old fashioned open surgery. So everybody's doing it robotically and it's really exciting to see what's happening with uh, in that world. Um, Surgery is easier. I think the results are good um, and that's the way to go. African-Americans are clearly at increased risk of death from prostate cancer. Um, They seem to be at higher risk of um, of getting a high grade disease, later stage disease, and and they have worse outcomes. And there's been a lot of um, public health and epidemiologic data looking at why that is. Some of it clearly appears to be access to healthcare. And, uh, And the missing key in there is whether or not there may be a genetic basis to it. And I think that there's going to be, what we're going to find out is there's going to be a a combination of multiple factors. Terrific. Uh, Comment on male sexuality. (laughs) So the other thing that's gone on in my career over the course of it is um, everything's different about men and sex now, or just sexuality in general. So when I came out of my training, you know, I was interested in some of the testosterone stuff, but it was really, I was a sexual medicine guy within the specialty of urology. That was, you know, we have stones, we have incontinence, we have infections, we have cancer. And then one of the little uh, silos, if you will, or specialty areas within urology is sexual medicine. That was my baby. And for the first 10 years or so of my career, like all we would talk about, it's important for men to talk about sexuality and, But it was so hard to get men to come and talk. And then you know what happened in 1998 was the big event. And that was the introduction of Viagra. And all of a sudden, we have ads on television. We had a former presidential candidate, Bob Dole. Do you remember him? Bob Dole was a pitch man (laughs) for Viagra. And he, and he made the term ED a popular term, erectile dysfunction. We just call it impotence. Um, NIH had a meeting about impotence and decided that it was a pejorative term because it meant weak, powerless, right, impotent. And they said, if kidneys don't work, we call it renal dysfunction. If the liver isn't working, we call it hepatic dysfunction. So if the penis doesn't work, we're going to call it erectile dysfunction, ED. And um, there was Bob Dole talking about ED. It was unbelievable. And all of a sudden, everybody talked about sex. Now, human sexuality is complicated. And so typically what you know we would get is men would talk about in the sense that they did come to the doctor, to my office and many doctors everywhere. And they'd say, doctor, can I, can I get a prescription for Viagra? And later Cialis and Levitra, and now there's a fourth one called Stender. And um, but you know the but what was missing, I think, still is a sense of um, what does sexuality mean to us as human beings. Um, and you know, I wrote a book. You know, my last book was The Truth About Men and Sex, and it's really stories from my practice uh, that sent around a couple of themes about what men are really like when the door is closed in the doctor's office. And I will tell you that when I started out as a young uh, urologist and I started doing this sexual medicine I thought I was so smart and I believed I had my own thoughts about what men were like. And in many of those thoughts especially in terms of sexuality we're not very favorable to men. Like the stereotype is that men are selfish. They care only about themselves. They'll do all sorts of lousy things. And, and what I found in my practice was that uh, men cared and they cared deeply about their partners, that more than themselves, this isn't universal, but it's, um, but it's very common is what they cared about, once they were in a relationship where they cared about their partner, they cared more about being able to provide sexually for their partner, more about their partner's um, pleasure and satisfaction than they cared about themselves. And that was absolutely shocking to me. One story that really stood out is I had a a man who was uh, paraplegic. He had had a diving accident when he was young. Um, he had good function of his hands and arms but below the waist there wasn't anything happening and he was married the nurse actually took care of him uh, when he was uh, in the hospital for his for his neck injury and he was in, he, he had he had no sexual function and so we treated him with uh, there's medicines that can be injected in the penis uh, that are vasoactive medicines Um And they allow the penis to create an erection, even though the connection between brain and the penis is gone, as with spinal cord injury. And so they often get very good erections. The guy comes back to the office, you know, after we've taught him how to do this. He says, Doctor, it's amazing. It's amazing. I'm like on top of the world. I feel like a man. And most people would hear that story. And they'd say, well, of course, he feels like a man. He's having sex. Um, He's getting pleasure from it. But the kicker in that story is he has no sensation below the waist. He actually doesn't feel anything. He doesn't have an orgasm. The reason he feels like a man is he's able to have sex with his partner with this new treatment so that he feels like he's doing what he's supposed to be doing as a man and providing sexually for his partner. It's just an amazing little case and changes uh, shifts shifted for me how I think about uh, this whole issue.
1: Terrific. Thank you for sharing that story. Final question. <clears throat> if you were going to, into medicine today, you just graduated from medical school, <clears throat> you have all the options, there are amazing fields in medicine, subspecialties we know about genomics, we know about immuno-oncology, we know about the microbiome, which is one of the hottest topics in medicine. What specialty would you go into? Would you
2: still go into urology? (laughs) Well, you know, medicine is amazing, isn't it? Um, When when I I started in general surgery, that's what I was going to, and then I was thinking about all the all the fancy things I could do from it, you know, trauma surgeon, cardiac surgeon. And um, and I decided after a year or two, I was gonna do urology. And when I told my mother that I was going to be a urologist, urological surgeon, she said to me, You know, heart surgery is a great field. <laughs> <laughs> I said, Ma, I'm gonna do, I'm gonna be a urologist. She <laughs> said, You know, in neurosurgery, they do amazing things. It's so fascinating. (laughs) But she accepted it. And here's what I would tell you. Urology is actually, most people don't know that much about it. It's incredible. And I've had an incredible uh, career, like so stimulating intellectually. And, you know, what we have in urology is a lot of people go into it because they like, we have a lot of tools. So if you're a tinkerer, there's a lot to play with. Uh, Urologists have a great sense of humor. They're skilled surgeons. Um, and we, ha- we take on some of the biggest topics um, in health, In, in w- a couple of which we've already discussed today, prostate cancer, sexuality, testosterone, um, kidney cancer is another. It's, a, it's an excellent field, and I would recommend it to anybody. But you know, the more general question, I think, Sanjeev, is about is it worth being a doctor? And I would say that, especially for those with a scientific bent and a desire to uh, use whatever your intellect is to help people. There couldn't be a better field in the world. Yeah,
1: I totally agree with you. And actually, if you're going to medicine, there's so many different career paths. So one can be a clinician. One can be a researcher. One could head an organization. One could be a CEO of a company. One could be a speaker. One could be a writer. could be an author. You could go into public health, like the inspiring Paul Farmers of the world. And even if you go into one of those silos, you could have a parallel career, a part-time parallel career, whether it's as a speaker, as an author, as an innovator, as somebody daring to open the Men's Health Center on Chestnut Street, (laughs) run the first Harvard CME course, on men's health. We worked together on that project some years ago. So it's still a fascinating field. And and you can, you know, find your purpose in life and be very happy doing it. My favorite quote is from Mark Twain, who once said, the two most important days in your life are the day you're born and the day you find out why. Each one of us has a singular purpose in life. So, Abe, I wish you all the very best and uh, we'll be in touch. And thank you so much for sharing your wisdom and your insights with us today.
2: Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Sanjeev.
1: All right. Take care.
0: Be sure to join Dr. Sanjeev Chopra, host of this podcast, for Primary Care Now, a Prime Med virtual conference taking place December 3rd through 5th. Along with his colleague and friend, Dr. Frank Domino, Dr. Chopra will be a keynote speaker during this virtual learning experience. You can register for free and earn up to 19 CME CE credits by attending. Learn more at wwwprimedcom primary care now. We thank you again for joining Primed for today's podcast. Remember to claim your CME credits for the program on this activity's landing page on primed.com podcast. That's PRI-MED.com podcasts. Also, be sure to check out all of our other podcasts and primary care activities on primed.com as well. See you next time.